You're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Historically in our business, fast growth has been a red flag and a sign that something might be wrong. The fastest growth has often been followed by a period of significant underperformance later on as the chickens come home to roost. But there are some major exceptions to that rule, and today I'm speaking to one of them. Beezer has been one of the most successful, innovative and fast-growing specialty companies of the past two decades. Adrian Cox has been part of that journey over the same period and has just taken over the CEO role. In this podcast, we get right into Adrian's vision for what the next 20 years might be like. Growth is definitely a big part of the story, but in this lively interview, you really get to know what Adrian is like and how he thinks. This is an organisation that has a tendency to run towards problems, not away from them and in doing so bakes growth into the business. After all, if you can solve the toughest problems, you can get well paid to do so. And that's my overriding impression from this encounter. As Beasley gets bigger, it has greater resources to deploy on solving more sophisticated problems in more areas, and should be able to continue to grow at impressive rates, even as it becomes quite a large business. The only break on growth would be if we suddenly started running out of new problems to solve. And we already know that that is not going to happen anytime soon. In our talk, amongst other things, Adrian runs us through cyber market dislocation and how that might be resolved, the logic behind Beasley's ESG syndicate, and the opportunities and threats of algorithmic underwriting. He does all of this with infectious enthusiasm and a smile on his face. I'm really pleased with how this episode has turned out. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Well, Adrian, first of all, welcome to Voice of Insurance. Thank you very much indeed. Great to be here. It's great to be in your fantastic new offices. So, yes. Well, they're sort of visionary type offices. And, you know, you're new in this job. What's your vision for Beezy? Are you going to be continuing from what everyone else has been? You've had fantastic predecessors. So is it more of a continuation or have you come into this role with your own vision to really stamp something of yourself onto VC? I think it's a bit of both. I've been here for 21 years now and so I've been part of the journey that Beasley's been on and I've enjoyed that journey and have contributed to it. You know, I worked with Andrew 
on the exec since 2008. So I've been very much a part of what we've done and why we've been doing it. However, I've also enjoyed the last seven months of my life and I think about what the next 20 years for Beasley can look like. And without sounding too trite about it, I think the personal ambition I have for Beasley is for it to realise its potential as a specialty insurance company against the backdrop of the fact that in a world that's getting riskier and more complicated, the role that a specialty insurance company can have in the world of insurance is quite exciting and ever bigger. And I think that gives the ambitions for a company like us wings to fly, frankly. Now you've had that time to think. You weren't one of those people who was sitting there saying, you know what, when I get to be boss, I'm going to change all these things and do everything differently. And No, no, not at all. Not at all. But what we have had to do, because you get asked the question a lot, is I've been putting into order all the thoughts that have been jumbled around in my head for the last 20 years and go, actually, I'm going to have to put some structure to this because I'm going to need to explain it and justify it and discuss it internally and externally. And to do that, you have to put some kind of order to it. So I've been spending some time doing that so that I can talk about it somewhat cogently. It's interesting what you were saying about being a specialty company that can really help sort out the world's ever more complex problems. And I suppose BC is now a much bigger entity, much more able to solve those problems. Does that mean that your ambitions are much it's almost like a snowball where you get the point where you get to a certain critical mass and then you'll be able to accelerate the next period of growth because you can do so many more things. Partly, yes, we're a much bigger company than we were even five years ago. And I remember fretting when we reached $500 million, thinking we're a very big company and we're almost 10 times that now. But being of a certain size and scale, looking back at where we were, say, back 10 years ago or just before the financial crisis to now, The scale that we have enables us to deploy more things in more places immediately because we have platforms in North America, Europe, as well as here in London. And we have more resources to invest in stuff. So I think we do have more capabilities than we had when we were smaller simply because of those two things. And that vision is still very much about growth. The vision is about realising our potential. And what we've always wanted to do is to find industries and products which suit us as a specialty company, i.e. where if we can apply some sort of subject matter expertise and deploy that at the point of sale, that has some value. And we've always looked for products in areas that have those attributes, but also in areas that are growing themselves, because from a growth perspective, it's much easier to do that where the demand pool is naturally growing. So we've been looking for areas that suit us that have long-term growth. That's why you find us in things like technology, healthcare, environmental cyber because those things suit us and they're growing industries with growing insurance needs and those are things that are already growing at above gdp exactly average exactly so you know the numbers that get quoted at me is that the pnc world is growing at gdp plus one or two percent the specialty world is growing at eight to ten percent a year that's a much more interesting place to be isn't it yeah and so when you talk about fulfilling your potential what is the potential would you say you know in another five years ten years you know, from five billion to what? 50? Five billion. To, I think it's easier to put a number on what we can do in five years. I don't think there's a natural end game to where we can be, because if the world's getting riskier and more complex, and insurance needs adapt to meet that, our world keeps on growing. And if our world keeps on growing, then the scale which we can achieve and the things we can do keep growing. So in twenty, thirty years, Beasley could be. I don't know. It all depends on whether the world stops getting riskier. So yeah, so you're really saying. Your growth is only going to be constrained by global growth exactly. itself. Exactly. And all that we've been seeing with the way that the world has been evolving these last 10, 15 years is that it is getting more interconnected and more complex and throwing off new ways of doing things and new liabilities that insurance can help with.
And when you said five years, what would it be, double in size in five years? Perfectly possible. I mean, we've been growing 29% this year, 20% something last year. So That'll do it in three and a bit. That'll do it in three and a bit, yes, indeed. So let's talk more specifically, nearer term, you've had really strong growth in 2021. Yep. How long is that going to continue? What are you sort of penciling for 22? Obviously, I'm sure all your business planning is done now. We said in our Q3 IMS that we were feeling more positive about the rate environment going into 2022 than we were at the beginning of the summer. And I think quite a lot went on over the summer, actually, that influenced the mood music around the marketplace. And so I think our growth prospects are still in the sort of bullish end of what we would want to do because of what's happening to demand for our products. And I think the market is going to be a healthier place next year than I thought that it might have been six months ago. Because certainly in the summer we were worrying about rate turning off. So you're not worried about that? Do you think a lot of that growth is still going to be rate on rate on rate? Yeah, I think there was talk of tapering off of rates in areas where there have been rate increases for a number of years and profits were coming through and capital was coming back and, and so on and so forth. And what we've seen, I think, over the summer take property, for example, which was there uh, was much talk of tapering off in property. What happened after the Texas freeze and then the events in the summer with wildfires going on and Europe flooding and a, and a hurricane, which actually seemed relatively normal by, <laughs> by, the, by the other standards, is that, you know, a great big spanner gets thrown in the works of people's thinking because climate change has come full square in front of everyone's perceptions from regulators to management to boards to investors. And the confidence people have in their models starts to erode a bit. And that has changed the mood music perceptibly in property from insurance all the way through to retro. And I think that's right. I think we need to actively underwrite for these things. And I'm not sure the market was. And that's changed the game a bit. So it's just keeping everyone honest. And, you know, when those retained profits sitting in your accounts and they make you feel quite clever, I presume, and then thinking, oh, I could give a discount. There's a difference between saying, well, we're getting rate on rate on rate. That's fantastic to saying, actually, the exposures have changed. So rate on rate on rate may not be as fantastic as it seems. And on the liability side, we're seeing the same sorts of stories. Yes, we've been getting rate on rate on rate. But part of that has been factoring in a complete change in how society behaves, which wasn't priced for five years ago. And the market's expectations is the drivers behind the changes in how society thinks have not gone away. And so part of the reason why I think prices are where they are and there's more momentum behind that is that there is an expectation that we're in a period of elevated risk for which we're being rewarded, but we're not being over rewarded. So are you feeling comfortable when you're looking at the book across the book? Are you comfortable about the rate adequacy? I'm comfortable in about 85% of our portfolio, which for us is quite confident because we're usually pushing and pulling quite hard on stuff. There are some areas where exposure to social inflation is particularly severe and or where I don't think the market has quite reacted to a change in exposure where we're not feeling quite so bullish yet. But yeah, about 85%. Do you think that's really the big call of the moment, that sort of getting that social inflation, inflation call right? Yes. We're used to pricing for uncertainty, so long as we know what we're pricing for. So funnily enough, I think in insurance to go to a Donald Rumsfeld quote, insurance isn't bad at dealing with known unknowns. It's not very good at dealing with unknown unknowns. Social inflation is an unknown unknown, so there's some uncertainty as to how bad it can be, but we're all aware of it, and we can figure out how to deal with it, and we can adjust as we go. I suppose it's not necessarily unknown unknown, because it's definitely happened before. It has, it has. So it's a known unknown. It's a, but we know it'll be different. Yes, we do. And so you can, that is something you can underwrite too. The things that take us by surprise are the ones that were unknown to start with. And I think 
we were taken by surprise on social inflation because we hadn't figured just quite how deeply the financial crisis had affected the way people think and behave and how that would permeate to the way juries behave, judges behave, regulators behave. We hadn't realised just how entrenched or how much momentum that would build and the impact that would have on loss activity. Yeah. When you're looking across your portfolio, I'm sure there are things that you think these are really core Beasley things that we do and that's what defines us and we know how to underwrite them in such a way that we will make a good return for our investors over the cycle, you know, soft or hard. But are there any classes that you feel, given this is a time when opportunistic underwriters are making hay, yep. if they can, yep. do you ever look at your portfolio and say, well, some of them are a bit more opportunistic than others or, or is it not? Or would you always rule that out and say, actually, we never do that because actually we only get into a class because we want to be in it forever? A bit of both. We've realised over the years that predictability has some value to clients and brokers. And that's particularly true when you're in a domestic marketplace, because the ability of brokers to trust that you're going to carry on doing what you say you're going to do has some long-term value to it. And so being opportunistic, whilst it is enjoyable from an underwriting perspective, is actually quite dangerous from a brand perspective, because it starts to ruin that predictability. And so that's why we're quite picky about when we get into something. And when we're in something, we tend to be in it for a long time. Having said that, there are always bits of opportunities that, that come along that you can capitalise on. And we do, but we're quite clear about what we do that's for the short term and what we do that's not for the short term. Well, things that where your brand is less likely to be associated with and it's simply going to be filling out a slip of some high excess layer of something quite. that will probably quite. come and go. Yeah, and it's enjoyable, isn't it, looking at deals that come across your desk from time to time that are a bit different but have, a, have some interest to them that way. Good, but you do think about brand... Yeah, I think about the fact that an enormous part of the insurance contract is around trust that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And part of that is, if I say I'm going to do something this year, I don't just change my mind next year for no reason. And that has some real value to it. Certainly, if I was one of these consultants deconstructing your brand and sort of going through it with you, I would certainly assume from the outside, BC is definitely known for innovation. Um, And we can run through some of those things. But one of your latest innovations has been this ESG syndicate in a box. And I'd yep. love to, you to explain what's the rationale behind all of that. Yeah, there are a couple of main reasons, of which the driving one is we need to learn. I'm quite convinced that insurance has quite an active role to play in helping our clients manage the transition from a high-intensity to a low-carbon-intensity world. Because we're quite good at understanding climate, and we can take risk quite efficiently as a financial institution. And we have lots of assets to invest. So intuitively, you would think, wouldn't you, that there's quite a lot we can do. Because we haven't really delved into what ESG is and what attributes it drives and how we can, what companies need to do to get to that low carbon intensity and what risk transfer would help them do that. So as we thought about that problem, We thought, well, the first thing we really want to do is engage with our clients and ask them and figure it out and work with them to do that. So then the thought process became, well, how do we get a mandate to do that? And how do we incentivize our clients and our brokers and our underwriters to actually engage on that topic? Because if you're renewing your crime policy and your underwriter starts asking you about your ESG plans, Many clients and brokers will go, why on earth are you asking me that? It's completely irrelevant. And you go, well, I'm on a data gathering exercise. And they go, well, you can ask someone else. If, though, 
you can go and by the way if you answer this well you can have some more capacity behind us suddenly you've got a reason to ask the question we also know we've given ourselves a mandate because we have something to offer we also know because we're doing it ourselves that companies that take ESG seriously want other companies like that in their supply chain and we can start to do that with insurance do you have an inkling that those companies are going to be better risks anyway yes they'll have lower loss ratios won't they you would think that intuitively there's a correlation between a company that does ESG well and a well-run company and that's one of the things that we will be exploring so i'm hoping it's kind of a win-win right we're providing something of value to our clients we get to engage with them we get to be part of their supply chain backed by capital that has strong ESG credentials um, and hopefully out the back of it you know come some ways that we can actually tangibly help which is the real goal. But why does it have to be in a separate entity to do that? And perhaps also we'll know in the long run over the next 20 years everything's going to be ESG because you know. It has to be. It's going to be. I mean it's just going to happen isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's not just going to happen. No, but no, but it has we know to. it's becoming a political absolute certainty yeah, either absolutely. 2040, 2050, 2060. Yeah. We can argue about all that but we know it that will just be all business will be ESG, or certainly the E part of it mm-hmm. is going to be done there. There won't be any coal-fired power stations then or coal mines, right. almost certainly. Well, the last one will be shutting down will be on the news. So why do you need to put that in a separate pot of capital? Is it because that capital's, you know, one of the corollaries of this great demand for ESG investment is that, of course, which is it's, it's fantastic financial mechanism. It's what's so good about capitalism is making it relatively cheap to build a renewable power station versus a coal one, which is almost getting harder and harder and now almost impossible to finance. And so that cost of the dirty cost of capital is really high. The green cost of capital is almost zero. In fact, almost below zero, it seems okay. to be. It's like, if I want to worry about this, it's slightly below zero. So are you just, is it being sort of clever around that, seeing that that ESG capital is going to be cheaper than your sort of standard insurance capital and then utilizing it in that sense? No, I think it was because if we wanted to offer our clients something in return for them engaging with us on the subject, the idea of offering them something that was backed by capital that took ESG seriously, we thought would resonate with our clients. And it would be interesting to capital providers. And it has been. So it's, more, so it's like a sort of sandpit where you can start experimenting with this, rather than you don't want to suddenly jump the whole of Beasley's assets to ESG as of day one, because that might not work. As you said, I think a lot of the corporate world is going to have to move ESG to the centre of what it does over a relatively short period of time. And so in 10 or 15 years' time, will we have a separate ESG syndicate? Probably not. But in the meantime, is this a good mechanism for us to use to do what we need to do and provide ESG capital with something to invest in and provide our clients with something that helps them with the supply chain? Yeah, I think there's a win-win there. But I'm hopefully... Hopefully, it's not a long-term one, because hopefully, as you say, everything will be eventually, and that's where we need to get to. Yes. So it's not like the tracker, um, you know, no. the tracker strategy syndicate, where it's fairly obvious we can all agree, probably philosophically, that it has to be a low-return type form of capital, because it's lower volatility, low-return tracking the market. Low cost. And low cost, yep. and, and yeah, very low touch and mm-hmm. low friction. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that. It's not that. No, it's a completely different strategy to that. And That's it's good. Well, I think the most important thing with asking these questions, sometimes it's really important to find out what something isn't rather yes. than what, what it is. Because yes. people, otherwise people assume that it's the thing that 
you haven't said it isn't that yet. <laughs> so. No, and it's an, it's an interesting question because a lot of the capital providers were like, "Is it got the same cost structure as five six two three? And we said, no, because here each risk is individually underwritten by the underwriters who write for 623-263, plus there's additional due diligence going on with the There's a lot of brain power, presumably. And that's the interesting side of things, because presumably and now you know you can get different scores from people are setting up ESG scoring sort of, and actually rating agencies themselves are getting involved yep. in this and peer doing it. Yep. Um, yeah, how do you get into the underwriting of the ESG, that compliance? Is it a big, complicated, no? There are three companies that we're using to validate our clients and our applicants and we'll be using them we're also going to expand that so that we can approve others if they work there are a lot of companies out there doing this they all have very different scoring weightings ways of getting the answers so some will just use publicly available information some will ask you to fill in a questionnaire some will come in and interview you some of them place a huge reliance on human rights others are very focused on climate change and part of what we will be doing over the next few years is figuring out which one of those really have a correlation to other loss experience and which ones are more accurate and which ones track well to companies that actually deliver what they say they're going to deliver. And so there's a lot we can learn there. And you're right, there's a big divergence in what they're asking and how they score. And are you be building your own view of that risk yourself, your own ESG view? I presume Ultimately, you want to overlay. Yeah, you, know, you won't just take this number and say, great, 76, that, I know what price to charge for that. Ultimately, we want our own view of risk, don't we? Because that's how you build advantage. And is that what the sustainability team's all about? Or is that something different? Uh, no, the sustainability team is broader than that. So they're uh, involved in risk as well as responsibility. So they handle both sides of that. Right, well, there's more to say about that. I mean, and how many people is that? And, and where and how do they interact with the underwriters and around your business? So it's led off by a chap called Chris Illman, who works for our head of strategy. And he's engaged with all sectors of the business. He's the one that helps us fill in some of these surveys that we need to fill in. He's also the one that's engaging with all the underwriters, think, going through with them how we start to embed ESG underwriting into their product underwriting and what that means and how that kind of works. So it's really, you know, going to your offshore energy team and saying, right, guys, this is obviously you're going to be top of my list or and then aviation say well yeah obviously aviation's going to change isn't it and it might not etc and what does a good aviation client look like versus a good oil and gas company right and how do you tell an oil and gas company that's got a credible transition plan that's taking it seriously what does that actually look like versus one that doesn't and those are that's quite different sets of due diligence obviously the other thing that if you threw a rock up in the air and it hit a broker and you ask them what does beasley do they'd say <laughs> first of all they say oh you know what well, ouch and they say ouch yes <laughs> and then they'd say oh yeah beasley well cyber obviously you've been known you've helped that way to happen by being probably one of the first companies to have thank you make a really coherent product that people could buy you know the breach response and things like that it was a defined product that had a specific coverage that people could get their head around and say right yes i think i'll buy this because i think there's value in buying this actually that's the crux of it is that people could get their head around what on earth they were buying yes you can certainly well for me it was the first time when i i saw it in one of your either interim results four year results or ims and it was, suddenly became a line that it was quite a big number and before i'd sort of ignored cyber it was an interesting theoretical thing you could write a feature about that's the moment where it became a class of business. Mm-hmm. Obviously, cyber's really matured since then. In fact, this is the, probably that real one of the points of absolute maturity of a market when, yes, you have a product, people start to buy it, and then you actually start to get losses. You know, it starts off being this great growth product with very low loss ratio, and then suddenly, you know, the losses come in, it becomes real. 
that's sort of my theory of how a product development works. Obviously, it, it only becomes a real product once it gets a loss ratio over about 55, 60, and people start to go, oh, I'm actually losing money writing this now. Now it's a real class. Can I need to remediate this class? How do you convey a raised eyebrow on a, on a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> just say, just say, yes, for the record, for the record, Mr. Cox has raised both of his eyebrows. Yeah, it, it is. A, it has been a profitable class of business. It has had its moments before, and so it's sort of demonstrated that there's real exposure there many times before. And there've been sets of issues before. Right? You know, back in 2015, there were a bunch of large retailers all got breached. Yeah, you know, and then there were some big healthcare companies, and they all got breached. So it's sort of had its moments before. And from a legal and regulatory perspective, it's long been a product that has been very, very useful for companies because the duties that you have to your clients and to your employees and to anyone whose data you have has been getting more and more onerous over the past 15 years. So I think it's always been a product that's had real value. It's a risk, though, that has, I think, predominantly been a legal and regulatory one for most firms. So it's been a high-risk product for some, but a kind of, a, as you say, more theoretical risk for some. What's happened over the last, or for most, what's happened over the last 36 months is it's presented a business risk to everyone. And that's been a huge transition of perceived exposure from one sort of slightly theoretical legal and regulatory to a manufacturer to one that's actually front and centre a business risk. Tomorrow, I could get shut down for a number of days. That's quite serious. And that exposure, you're right, has generated some serious loss activity for insurers who've, um, who've had to scramble a little bit. And I think it is a turning point in the cyber market, absolutely. But on that, Adrian... Um at your last quarterly update, you know, mm-hmm. results update, obviously we've had ransomwares come in, mm-hmm. been the big mm-hmm. big part of the loss equation of the last 12 to 18 mm-hmm. months. It's been the problem. And you've been talking about remediating that. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Is that the insurance industry running away from a problem and saying, I'm just on my next renewal, I'm excluding ransomware, or I'm just moving up to very high access layers where I don't think the ransomware is going to be? Or So how are you remediating it? Are you finding ways of dealing with it and stopping it from happening or are you just moving or stepping away from the risk and saying I don't do ransomware anymore? There is very little consistency in the market in terms of how different insurers and MJs et al are tackling it. Our strategy has been that it's quite important to keep the integrity of the cover intact so people are buying a cyber insurance policy so that when something goes wrong it steps in and helps. So our strategy has been to figure out how to improve our risk selection how to improve our risk management, and how to make sure we're pricing for it properly. So the solution we've been presenting to our brokers and clients is, we'll be clear when we're happy to underwrite a risk. Where there are some concerns that we have in terms of some vulnerabilities there are, we'll be clear about what those are and what you need to do to cure them. We're not going to start withdrawing the cover, but we are going to charge you for it. As a result, I think the rate changes that we've been getting and the prices we've been getting have been slightly higher than other carriers who've been stripping back the coverage and stepping back a little bit more. Our view is that this is a risk management issue, pure and simple. In the same way that if you've got a factory, you need to sprinkler it and put your firewalls in. If you've got a network, you need to protect it properly. And insurers have long been involved in engineering property risks so that they're safe. And we're applying the same solution here. We're building the threat intelligence. We've built the threat intelligence so we can understand what threats are out there, what vulnerabilities they exploit, figuring out how you remediate that, how you can do that and risk manage that, communicating that to our clients, telling them what the vulnerabilities are and working with them. And that engineering sort of solution seemed like the most logical way of tackling the problem. The thing that makes it slightly different to the 
factory issue is that the problem for cyber changes because the threats change. And so we have to keep up to date with what the threats are so that we can figure out what the risk management needs to be and work with our clients to do that. How's that going down with clients? Yeah, good question. And that was one of the things we were watching this year because for this to work, it needed to be sellable because relatively speaking, it's intrusive and that's as a journey a client has to go through. I think towards the beginning of the year, a number of brokers and clients were choosing a different, less intrusive option. I think as the value of the product becomes clear, over the last six, seven months, we've been increasingly successful in selling what we're trying to do, which is when the threat changes, we're actually in quite a good position to understand it and figure out how to deal with it and then help you. But to do that, it's a more intrusive solution, but it is a solution. So that's much more of a commitment to you to really invest in this and to be sort of primary, close, first loss, yeah. uh, close to that customer. Absolutely. So, so you investing a lot more in you know actual engineers, the sort of people who go and put out these digital yeah. fires. So we've been talking about building an ecosystem. So when we did our half-year presentation, we talked about an ecosystem that we were building that had a number of elements to it, some of the which were working with third parties, some of which we're building ourselves some using the Lodestone company that we've been building for a while so that we have our own in-house risk management capabilities and assessment capabilities as well as working with with external parties. I don't think we'll ever have enough resources internally to understand all the threats out there. We need to be able to work with third parties that do that for a living, including various government agencies who can get who can know stuff that we can't. One of the more interesting things that's happened this year is that the relationship between government and insurers has been changing as the threat's been seen by governments as more of a threat to national interest or national security, they've taken it very seriously. And that's been good for society and it's been helpful for us. And they've also realised, I think, that insurance has a role to play in the solution, which is in defining and setting and monitoring standards and actually taking the pressure off the public purse by being able to provide the insurance when it's necessary. So it's much more that sort of FM mutual sort of... Yeah. You know... Yeah, absolutely. Give the digital version of sprinklers and exactly then right. and obviously this is a much more live risk and of course the hackers are out there that you know we'll block off one entrance and they'll find a new one i'm sure quite, quite. and, then be and that's our else. job that's our job and i think that i've used the fm example myself yes yes of course but it takes a certain type of client that the transactional ones don't want the intrusion they don't want someone poking around saying you've got to put five hundred thousand dollars worth of sprinklers over here and something else over there the other ones are like, oh, just get it. But, but then that's not going to be your kind of client. You'd rather have the kind of client who's much more conscious of that risk and you want to work with them and help mitigate it rather than the other ones who are just more transactional and say, well, actually, I'll pay a bit more and then I won't have to talk to anyone. There is a bit of that. And I think there'll always be a mixture of, of a clients who want different relationships with their brokers and, and their insurers. I think what, what's interesting about cyber is that the threat changes. And so for a lot of companies who don't do tech for a living, to build the in-house capability to be able to do that yourself all the time is quite a commitment. Actually, if we're doing it for them as part of the insurance offering, it's relatively efficient for them, which is what we found a long time ago with our breach response product, right? Relatively speaking, for insurance, that was quite intrusive because when the breach happened, we got involved right away. But the quid pro quo for the clients was they didn't have to build that capability in-house. And if you're a hospital, you just don't want to. If you've got some spare dollars, you're going to use it on a new x-ray machine, not on building your network security and breach response capability. And I think there's a good sell there. Do you worry that the market is relevant enough, you know, for a big client to say, can we give them a meaningful enough 
limit and solution to this problem when you talk to one you know these sort of fortune 100 kind of companies FTSE 100 whatever the global corporations do you feel you can step in the room and actually say look we can help solve this problem obviously with brokers and with your with the syndicated market that we've got out here can we give them something that's really going to help them or is it just going to be a sticking plaster i think it's the former the market is dislocated at the moment as you know all the different carriers and insurtechs and mjs trying to figure out how to adapt their entire model to cope with a fast-changing threat environment. But cyber is an obviously growing, obviously fast-growing risk. As the world gets more interconnected, cyber exposures are ever-growing. There is an insurance need for it, and it's quite a big marketplace now, and is growing fast. That is fundamentally going to be attractive to capital. So I'm quite confident that in the near future, the market will recover more capacity, insurance, reinsurance, and so on and so forth will arrive because there's such a great demand for it and we'll figure our way through it. Yeah, it could just be automatically following you. Well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a good end to the conversation, yes. Well, it's a good beginning to the next one. <laughs> the, um, in a recent conference, you mentioned about, um, you worried about, I don't know, was it worried? You'll correct me if the context is wrong. You talk about um, people sort of coming with their algorithms and parking their algorithmic tanks on, on, on the lawn. underwriter's lawn. Yes. And I wasn't sure if we didn't have time to really question you in that conference uh, no. as to what you meant by that, exactly what you meant. So here, I'm here now. So yeah. are you at all worried? Do you think that the algorithms are going to be good enough? Presumably they're going to be your own tanks, your own algorithms, not somebody else's. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of talk, isn't there, about digitization and systems and processes and you know, end-to-end digitization. And that is very important. There's another end to data analytics, though, which is about insight and intelligence and new ways of thinking about risk, risk selection and pricing. And as a specialty carrier and a specialty market in London, a lot of the risks that we write are complex risks. And the ingenuity that we've brought to that to date is mostly human. So we've relied on people that understand their product, understand their industry, and we apply them at the point of sale, and they do their thing. The trend that we're trying to get in front of is I think that human ingenuity is going to be alongside other intelligence that we can gather, other data that we can gather, other insights that we can gather, so that it'll be a a sort of bionic version where we get a mixture of human knowledge and better data than we've ever had that will improve our segmentation and our pricing. And that is, on the one hand, very exciting because we're doing some of it and we're getting great new insights from working with different third parties to apply new sorts of data to the way we think about corporate risk or hull risk or whatever. It's also very worrying from a competitive perspective because if actually that data analytics side starts becoming more and more crucial in the decision-making machine and and the segmentation and the pricing, and the human bit becomes more partnership or relationship management, actually, unless you keep up with that, you can find your own underwriting competitive advantage eroded quite quickly. And we're a marketplace in London that relies very heavily on face-to-face human interaction. And one of the things I'm very aware of is that, yes, and that needs to be complemented by heavy investment in that capability to make sure we're on the leading edge of segmentation and pricing. But are you really, should you be worried though? Yeah. Actually worried, worried? Uh, I think 
not worried, worried, but I think it, we need to make sure that we are at the leading edge of that. So it definitely influences what we're going to invest in and and why. We've been doing this for about three years anyway. One of the things we've been investigating is, is there a link between the individual attributes of senior management at a company and DNO risk? Because we had this thought process that a lot of behaviour is driven by culture and culture is driven from the top. And so is the behaviour and attitudes of the people at the top driving the behaviour and attitudes of the people that work at the company? So we worked with the company to go, right, can you find any link between how the CEO and the C-suite behave and the likelihood of getting sued? And they could. Now that is... That's very interesting. Very, very different from traditional DNA well, analysis. Well, just two years of annual reports. And, <laughs> and I'm sure you could have bunged someone the Enron annual report from 1999 and 1998 and they'd have written it because it looks like a really good company. There you go. And there was some confusing stuff about energy derivatives on page 1026, which they probably wouldn't have had time to read, frankly. So I always thought, yes, how does a DNO underwriter right. do underwriting? Right. Now, the DNO underwriters will tell you, and they're right, part of the due diligence is talking to the CEO and talking to the CFO and getting a bead on it. But actually, if you can accompany that with some serious analytics about how that works, your decision-making is considerably enabled, which is great if it's your decision-making. It's less great if it's the decision-making of the company down the road. So all this, does it just make it more imperative that you have to own much more of your intellectual property? And some of the intellectual property doesn't have to be the data itself. It's just the way you use it. Isn't yeah. it? And combining three data sources suddenly creates a new bit of insight. Yes. I think it's, it makes it more important that we get access to and properly use our own data, which we have an enormous amount of. But it also means we have to be constantly looking for new data and new ways of looking at that data so we get fresh sets of insights. That's interesting. But so some of this is this fundamental potential threat to the way that business is underwritten. But would you be always confident that you're never going to have to make all those underwriters, all your underwriters, redundant one day? But that the world will get complex enough for them to go and move on to another well, new class that will, doesn't exist yet. No, A, I think fundamentally insurance, particularly specialty and complex insurance, remains a people-driven business because oftentimes the issues are messy and they're changing and you need the continuity to be able to manage these things over the long run. And also, I think the fresh data side will accompany and improve decision-making. It will not take over decision-making because the world's getting complicated at an equal, if not faster, place than technology is improving to keep up with it. You know, treaty technology is still not many to do away with <laughs> fact. Things are things that just where exactly. the computer treaty says, no, it's a railway risk, it's excluded. It has to go somewhere else. And do you think that the computer's always going to, this algorithm's going to say no, and then it's going to create new classes? I think that's... Where this, it always says no, and you think, I need to talk to someone about this because it can't be that way. The client can't, there can't be no cover for this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think we're anywhere near you know, Terminator in, in, in this. But I do think that if companies looking for new data and finding fresh insights are going to get a competitive advantage over us, we need to tackle that quite quickly. Do you worry more about your brokers then? Because they've got more information. They're more consolidated than you are. You're fragmented and relatively weak compared to them. If you can get 5% market share, you must be happy. But, you know, most of them have got They've got 30, 30, and 10 or whatever, haven't they, in so many classes of business. Could they be, you know, when they become sort of walking like the Terminator with an exoskeleton and sort of, you know, a big rifle, and they'll just get the capital and do it all themselves? Uh, Is that a real nightmare? That is is not something (laughs) I I have worried about. No, 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 that is not something I've worried about. Is that because underwriters are fundamentally, underwriters and brokers are not? I think it's because fundamentally... Insurance is a 
complex product and clients need advice. And I think there's a clear distinction between those who provide advice and those that provide capital. And for clients to be comfortable with getting advice, that needs to be segmented from the capital that provides the answer. And that's one of the reasons why we haven't gone direct, because we believe insurance needs advice, and that's what our brokers do. They provide the clients with advice and help. Yeah, and, and when they get the clients as well. You know, they have to take them out for lunch and other <laughs> things. That, you know, you just turn up and... Exactly, they just swan in. <laughs> well, on that, fundamentally your view... So it sounds like you wouldn't be completely uncomfortable with the idea of everything being done automatically if it, that were possible. Then if you're scared of that happening, then you're conscious that it, it's a real threat. It's not just something... It's not an irrational fear then, is it? The thing that made me sit up is that I have been convinced that some of the heart of our competitive advantage is the expertise we apply in the underwriting that we do and the claims handling that we do. And that, if there are different ways of getting that competitive advantage, I'm interested in them. And that's what made me sit up and notice, fundamentally, which is a different thing from everything's going to be automated end-to-end, everything's going to be digitised. That's a completely different set of issues, I think. Because you could just be sitting on your own just pressing buttons, couldn't you, saying, you know buying reinsurance and changing your pricing minute by minute with just sort of dialing up and dialing down. That, that's not a world I envisage, no. So do you see technology more as being, at the moment, it's much more about being sort of more like an exoskeleton, if we're going to carry on with sort of Terminator metaphors, to be something that's going to make your underwriter more skillful yep. and more productive. Yep. So that, I don't know, it'd be lovely to come into work and something's been scanning all your emails and said, by the way, Mark, I think these are your top 10 risks. They're all within your appetite. We know we're competitive on these, and we want these are the ones we actually want. Why don't you answer those five emails first? Because I think we're going to get it. We've got a good hit rate with this broker. We know we're competitive, and we we know that that's profitable. We want it. Yes. So that that is much more where. So if we go back into the technology to help us process stuff better and more efficiently, that is much more where I see us going. And we are developing technology to absolutely do that. And one of the exciting things that seems to have happened over the last three years is that technology has finally been good enough to deal with something that's as intrinsically messy as insurance. And it can really start to make a difference in in workflow and organisation and process. And that's quite exciting, actually. And how long is it before we can really start seeing that eating to the expense ratio? Uh, We have an ambition to get our expense ratio down to the early 30s over the next few years. And I think some of that's going to be because of the things that you had mentioned. So I think we should do, yes. I think doing twice as much work with the same amount of stuff and doing it better as well. Yeah, and being able to achieve your growth ambitions. And if we do double in size, we shouldn't have to double the number of people that we have. Great. And then they can all earn double the salary. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe they can't all earn exactly double the salary. Some of it has to go to the investors, I would have thought. We were talking about face-to-face, and it's so lovely to be sitting face-to-face because it's something you know you take for granted and it's taken away, and now we really appreciate it. I don't know how long it's going to be before we start taking it for granted again, of Mm. course. But, you know, it does seem to be London's come to life, but it's only it comes to life on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday at the moment. And do you think that's something that's almost going to become a permanent state of affairs? If I was a restaurateur, I'd be quite worried that, you know, no Monday, no Friday, and there's nothing happening at the weekend. So should I sell my restaurant? I think the most exciting thing is that there's a buzz in London again, and that's great, isn't it? And as you say, people are coming back and people are enjoying seeing each other and engaging and interacting again and enjoying it and coming back because they've enjoyed it. So that's a step forward. The other thing we've learned these last couple of years is that 
how powerful is some of the technology that we have to allow us to trade and do our jobs anywhere we want to. And that has opened up a whole world of possibilities as, as to how we can work. So I think we're at the beginning of a couple of years where we have to figure out, well, what does that actually mean? So how do you optimize face-to-face interaction, client interaction, innovation versus being able to do quite a lot of work very efficiently because I'm, I can get my head down and not be interrupted. And actually, it's much easier for me to take care of various people I need to take care of, do all these other things I can do and actually juggle my life better. So we are trying to figure out how that works. And in my head, all that's happened so far is that we've rediscovered the joy of getting together again. And if that happens to be on a Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday more than a Monday or Friday, then so be it. The way we will be working in three years in my head is completely unknown as yet and we're just beginning to figure all that out. But I'm glad we are and we have the opportunity to do so, right? You're embracing it. You're going with a sort of... You don't have a set idea. So I'm dying for everyone to be back Monday to Friday 9 to 5. Nope. Nope. I think we worked really hard. Most people I know worked really hard these last couple of years. And so one of the biggest culture changes I think we've had is any superstition there was that working from home meant you were taking it easy has been well and truly debunked everyone knows that you can be super productive at home and as connected or nearly as connected as you are anyway so how can we figure out how to optimize all that and that's quite exciting and and we are doing quite a lot of work internally with a lot of people trying to figure all that out and I think it'll take us another couple of years to do that so can you pencil in a sort of cost saving on office space not yet it's too soon too soon and do you think we need the Lloyd's building, Lloyd's room? There is something distinctive about face-to-face trading and the ability to problem-solve by doing that that is intrinsic to the lifeblood of the London market. So we need, you don't waste that in vain, do you? Yeah, when I was a broker, everyone knew and I was sort of bullshitting because I would go red. I was a terrible, I was a terrible sort of white liar. <laughs> so that's why I had to stop being a broker, by the way. So, you know, I just couldn't sort of, you know, if, even if someone said, have you already shown this to so-and-so, and what do they think? I know, I know. None of your business. <laughs> just start going red. red. And it was like, oh, that's not, you know, because, yeah, they already declined it, yeah. <laughs> and we get, we get uh, you know, I, I've had lots of commentary saying underwriters find it way too easy to say no on email. It's true. So, you know, there's a value, isn't there, in in having that face-to-face interaction. So I'm very keen we don't just let that go. In London, we're always, it seems to be we're in a permanent state of reform in London, just like the building's always being rebuilt and and knocked down again. We're in a really interesting and probably crucial phase of London market reform. I've probably been to the stage where I've said it's now or never a hundred times, too many times, and it's never quite been never. We've been lucky that it hasn't been never. But how is it going from your perspective, you think, Obviously, we all have to, it's difficult when we're finding commonalities. We've got a really diverse market, big insurers, small insurers, big brokers, small brokers, all these different counterparties, all with slightly different agendas. Finding something in common, is it going fast enough at the moment to keep London competitive as a long-term viable marketplace in a digital yeah, world? It's a, it's a strength and a weakness, isn't it? That diversity gives a strength to the London market. It also makes it very difficult to find common standards and common and market solutions when everyone's got a slightly different perspective. I think we have found out, haven't we, that it is possible to digitise things because we've had to. And having had a taste of it, it's quite difficult to let it go. And having found that there is technology out there that can put proper process in the messy world of of specialty insurance, it's difficult to let that go. So I'm optimistic that progress will be made 
it will be frustratingly slower than anyone wants it to be. But I don't see it slipping back, actually. And I, I do see us getting there. And I see a, a sort of a determination and a slight, uh, I see a determination there and less cynicism than before that it's not going to work. And do you think the potential is that obviously you can grow so much faster can yeah. you, and become even more global? Do you think 60 billion pound market-ish as a whole London market as a whole, could it be much, much bigger? Uh, I think it could be. As I keep saying, the world of specialty insurance is a fast growing world and new stuff needs to be insured all the time. Go back to where we were talking about climate change and products and services that the insurance industry could build to help clients manage that transition. That's specialty insurance, and that's a class of business that hasn't even been invented yet. And cyber was a class of business that wasn't invented 15 years ago, particularly. And Lloyd's writes 20% of it globally. I mean, that's, that's quite exciting, isn't it? If we were extremely efficient, then we could write more vanilla business as well, as ballast, you know, a stable, stable, slightly boring, profitable Vanilla we, business. We we, <laughs> we we don't do vanilla business. Less volatile as a, as a specialty carrier. Um, I think there's a. But difference. if you had a comparative advantage, why wouldn't you? There's a there's a difference, isn't there, between the role that a wholesale market plays in the world of insurance and a role that the domestic markets play, and there's a reason for that, isn't there? Fair enough, Adrian. Thank you so much for giving me so much time. Thank you, Mark. I hope I haven't asked you too many stupid questions. I really, really well, we went, we went way too far into Terminator. But <laughs> yeah, well, yes, it's, it's my wife's favourite film. <laughs> there so, you go. Yes. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. Good to see you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.